Welcome to FDD's Foreign Policy, Episode 1. I'm Cliff May, President of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and your host of this show. This week, we're lucky enough to be joined by Tom Jocelyn and Bill Roggio, uh, scholars at FDD, editors of FDD's Long War Journal. We, they got an exclusive advance look at the treasure trove of documents that in 2011 was taken from the Abbottabad compound of Osama bin Laden. Those documents have been locked up for years, recently released by a CIA director, Mike Pompeo. It's a fascinating interview. Glad you're going to join us. We're going to jump right in. Again, this is Cliff May, and this is Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not I correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic uh, man might do. I'm Cliff May. I'm your host. And joining me today, Tom Jocelyn and Bill Roggio. Tom Jocelyn is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and he's senior editor of FTD's Long War Journal, a publication widely read within the military and intelligence community. He served as a trainer for FBI's counterterrorism division, and he's a frequent contributor to the Weekly Standard and other publications. Bill Roggio is embedded with the U.S. Marine Corps, U.S. Army, and Iraqi forces in Iraq and with the Canadian Army in Afghanistan. From 1991 to 97, he served as signalman and infantryman in the U.S. Army and New Jersey National Guard. Thanks for being here today. Look, there's a treasure trove of documents right now that you guys have begun to explore. Uh, why don't you tell us, start, Tom, start with the story of how the U.S. government came into possession of this treasure trove of terrorist documents and, uh, and how, why it's taken so long. Uh, for any of them to be revealed? Well, this goes back to the raid in Abbottabad, Pakistan, where the Navy SEALs went in and executed this highly professional raid to kill Osama bin Laden. 2011, May. May 2011. And they were trained not only to kill bin Laden, but also to scoop up as much material, intelligence as they could. So thumb drives, hard drives, documents, anything they could fit. In fact, the guys started picking up Al-Qaeda gym bags on the floor and stuffing them because they ran out of room in the bags that they had. Um, this material... Flash forward a year, in early 2012, the Obama White House starts selectively releasing some of the files. And in fact, in May of, 2000, um, May of 2012, they released just 17 files from this massive treasure trove. Now, by that point in time, senior Obama administration officials, including National Security Advisor Tom Donilon, had said that these materials would fill a small college library. And then we get 17 files in May 2012 as an act of supposed transparency. Now, Bill and I are giant nerds. We're sitting here waiting for these Bin Laden files to come out. And the notice that comes out says, okay, well, here are your 17 files. And Bill and I get on the phone with each other and say, there's no way that this is the last of this. This can't be the last of it. There has to be more to come out. Um, not only that, but Bill and I, um, you know, we study this stuff very carefully. There was definitely a narrative associated with those 17 files. So some friendly journalists uh, with the White House reported that Bin Laden was in retirement 
that uh, you know there was this question about whether he was sidelined. All this was was incredibly inaccurate. Um, it, it, the files show the exact opposite, that bin Laden was, in fact, managing all this. And it wasn't just our conclusion that he was managing the international network. If you go to Mike Morell's book, The Great Wars, um, where he talks about what was learned from the bin Laden Mike files. Morell, Morell being a former CIA deputy uh, that's director. That's right. Mike Morell says, you know, look, the CIA before the Abbottabad raid thought that bin Laden was out of the game, that basically had passed off day-to-day -day management time in al Zawahiri. Lo and behold, we get these files and we had to totally change our opinion of how this worked, that basically this showed that bin Laden was, in fact, managing this international network of entities. That's a very important point. I mean, think about it. You know, there, there has been a lot of disagreement, a lot of ignorance, I would say, about the role that Osama bin Laden played in his own organization, Al-Qaeda, which struck us on 9-11 for years. And so this really started with Bill and I. We wanted to say, you know what? We need to see really what bin Laden was up to with all these different groups, organizations, including official Al-Qaeda groups, unofficial Al-Qaeda groups, others. We think these materials are just vital for understanding exactly how this enemy evolved through the years. And so now finally, flash forward several years later, the CIA has released uh, the vast majority of these files. And we've already learned so many things and we have so many other stories to come. Let's be precise on this and what we understand. For all these years, the Obama administration didn't release these files. The suspicion is that they told a story that was different from the story the administration was telling about bin Laden and his role and about al-Qaeda, which, as you'll recall, the administration, a number of think tanks, had said was an organization that was on its deathbed, was on the run, was severely diminished. Um, that story did not want told. Um, Mike Pompeo, the new CIA director, saw it differently, and he decided he's going to release documents, 470,000 of them. And by the way, give you guys an advanced look at it because you had been campaigning, and I know what I worked with you, getting lawyers, freedom of information requests, all kinds of ways to try to get these documents released so that you and other scholars and other journalists could figure out what they meant and how they informed the war that we're meant to be fighting. That's right. And I would just say two things on this, and I think Bill should comment about what we learned about Afghanistan and Pakistan because it's fascinating. Um, you know, we when we were campaigning for this, lobbying for this, I think certain people in Washington got sick of hearing about us because, you know, we would bring it up in congressional testimony. We'd bring it up in articles. It was really – we were hectoring people to get access to these files because 17 wasn't going to cut it. The um, – House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, HIPSI, which oversees the Intelligence Committee, actually included language in the 2014 National Intelligence Authorization Act mandating that the ODNI had to release more ODNI files. ODNI being the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which oversees the CIA. That's correct. And HIPSI had heard from us many times about why that was necessary, that they should have to put more files out. And the ODNI did do that between 2015, 2016, up until January of this year. But the files that they released, they released less than 300 files. And they listed a bunch of publications that were also scooped up in the raid. But that's still an insignificant fraction of the overall haul. And so this is why, you know, the, the last word on this couldn't be left to this January 19th release of this year. The, the entire cache needed to be released so we could see the whole, the whole thing. And we now have the vast majority of those files. And as Bill and I learned, it tells a very different story about Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, all this. Every war that we're fighting right now, the U.S. is against jihadis, these files touch on. Look, Tom and I and, and FD, we've pushed for the, the release of these files because we believe complete transparency is, is important. We believe that the book has not been closed on, Al, uh, on these files based on – that's what the um, ODNI said on January 19th, uh, 2017, the day before the Obama administration left office. They said there is no other important information in these files that is relevant. 
and uh, they they quote, they quote unquote closed the book. Closed, the, that was the, what the, they announced. We're closing the book. They were hoping that future administrations, the current administration, would not release anything further from this file. Exactly. And then when we do, when we finally are successful in getting these files released, we see things that are extremely interesting. Just to, just to first, let me state: it is extremely difficult to to dig through these files. They're not translated. We don't have uh, we don't have an index of what the, what there is. So we're we're going through it's file by file. It's a real jumble. Yeah. It is, but we immediately find things that are that the American public should be interested in. We see a video of Hamza bin Laden, Osama bin Laden's son, who is being groomed to be a senior leader, if not the heir of Al Qaeda. He's we're seeing his wedding video, and in there are three senior al-Qaeda leaders, one who's currently in Turkey, one who's in a jail in the United States, who was on the videos with Osama bin Laden immediately after 9-11. And one of them, I believe, I haven't confirmed, but one of them is Sayyid bin Laden, who the U.S. killed in a drone strike. He's holding this meeting, we're certain, in Iran. I'm sorry, the, the wedding is in Iran. Al-Qaeda at this time was supposed to be in prison or in detention. We don't see evidence of prison and detention during this video. Uh, two, two points to underline. One is this, these are the first images we have of a grown-up Hamza bin Laden. We see him as a kid, but not as a grown-up. That's important because now we have an image of him. Uh, the second thing is this wedding, from what I've seen on the video, it was a very festive affair to be held in Iran. Yeah, you know, two things, quick things on that. So one, um, you know, just past 9-11, the anniversary of 9-11, um, al-Qaeda released a graphic that had the childhood image of Hamza superimposed on one of the World Trade Center towers. Um, so even when they're celebrating 9-11, they wouldn't show him as an adult because they want him basically for security reasons. They think they can protect him. So this was important for the public and the wider public. And in fact, the CIA should have put this type of stuff out long ago. Why not advertise a more recent image of this guy so the whole world can see what he looks like or something closer to what he looks like now? This is common sense, I would think. You know, um, so that but that's certainly of of interest to the public. There's been a lot of interest in Hamza bin Laden. And the second thing is, you know, look, Hamza bin Laden. Yes, his wedding. You know, there's no evidence of security. Doesn't look like it's in prison. The you know his he does end up becoming more officially detained in Iran. This becomes controversial between Al Qaeda and Iran, and we have said over and over again we want to tell the whole story of that complex relationship, not just the pieces that some people want to cherry pick from it. And so releasing this, releasing these files, releasing all the files about that and many other issues tells the complete story as opposed to just the cherry picked version that some people in Washington want to tell. Steve Hayes is the editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, and I think it's worth pointing out that he was very much your ally in pushing as a journalist to get these documents so. released. And he's written some very interesting pieces that I commend to, to people in the Weekly Standard about this. But he makes a, a pretty tough accusation at the Obama administration. He says what they did with these documents, the, the, the withholding of these documents, this is what the politicization of intelligence actually looks like. Um, that charge you would say is accurate. Well, look, it comes back to a very start with a very simple, simple point. What was Bin Laden doing when a Navy SEAL put a bullet through his head, right? On that day, was he inactive? Was he in retirement? Was he a lion in winter? Because that's what certain journalists who were given early access to these files in 2012, that's what they reported, okay? That wasn't the CIA's conclusion. That wasn't our conclusion. Real intelligence professionals didn't conclude that at all. But that was the story that the White House fed certain journalists in 2012. And our quest to get these files released starts with that 
inaccurate misinformation because it's quite clear when you just spend any amount of time trying to process this information, you can see that he was far from in retirement. That he was far from being a line and winner. That he was corresponding with intermediaries around the globe. Now, the bottom line is too is that so many other issues get a little more sticky or a little more thorny, thornier if you start to investigate the whole story as opposed to just part of it. And we're interested in telling each aspect of that, each aspect of the story. So I'll tell you one quick example we haven't reported yet. We found files that are uh, signed by a Saudi sheikh who's unnamed, and they won't even give him an alias or a nom de guerre in the files that are going to bin Laden of who the Saudi sheikh is. Well, we're determined to try and figure out who that guy is, and we think we know, mm -hmm. and we're going to report mm -hmm. on that. But this is the type of stuff that may get uncomfortable for people is that when you start pulling these threads, they can go in a lot of different directions. And our whole point is the only way the public is actually going to learn about any of this is if the stuff is out there for everybody to analyze. One other aspect of this that uh, I'd like you to elaborate on is there was a, an idea for a long time that Osama bin Laden being dead, Osama bin Laden being a figurehead, Al-Qaeda was a severely shrunken, diminished organization. It was, it was no longer something to worry about. What the evidence you've seen suggests that that was not the case in May of 2011 when he, when he was killed, and it's certainly not the case today as well. Talk a little bit about the, the, the trajectory uh, uh, of Al-Qaeda. It's not exactly the organization it was on 2001, but it's also not been rendered uh, impotent. First, I would argue Al-Qaeda is a far more potent organization, at least when it operates locally, than it was in 2001. It had a presence in, it had a presence in Afghanistan and limited presence in, you know, more on the cellular level. Um, today, it's fighting insurgencies in Syria, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Mali, Somalia, Yemen. I can go on and on. So Al-Qaeda has grown and not diminished as an organization. Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, particularly in 2010, the Obama administration started pushing a narrative that there's only 50 to 100 Al-Qaeda fighters in Afghanistan. This, this number remained constant for six years. Um, I and Tom, we immediately began to, to question this. Um, the U.S. military's own... So, Information that we gathered on our own could disprove this. And then information, we, get, we gathered press releases, we watched Al-Qaeda, what they were talking about in their own propaganda. We were able to match up their operations with U.S. operations and see that this number was absolutely inaccurate. And something we are seeing in the bin Laden, we have seen in the bin Laden files, is Al-Qaeda is talking about their operations inside Afghanistan and Pakistan, how they're moving personnel, how they're evaluating personnel how they evaluated the drone campaign against it, um, how they said at one point in time that they're, they're, uh, the, you know, they're conducting me, uh, medium level of, of operations and what they were at their highest tempo of operations. This is while the drone campaign was very likely at its highest. So the, this type of information, this is, we are committed to fighting defeating al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, not giving a foothold back in Afghanistan, and um, as well as in Pakistan. That's where the drone campaign has taken place primarily. We have to understand al-Qaeda and able to defeat it. And if we want to make up narratives such as 50 to 100 al-Qaeda and keep this number constant, oh, by the way, this, this was absolutely blown out of the water in, in October 2015 when the U.S. launched raids against two al-Qaeda camps in the Shorabak district in Kandahar province in the south. Prior to this, the U.S. military assessment, intelligence assessments, was that al-Qaeda was confined to Kunar and Nuristan and had a minimal presence throughout the country. 
And they, and again, that 50 to 100 number was repeated. Uh, somewhere around, an estimated 150 to 250 al-Qaeda fighters were killed at these two camps in Shorabak. The U.S. commanding general said that it was the largest al-Qaeda camp they've witnessed since 9-11. So how is you know so that narrative is blown out of the water and we and you could see that from what's in the Osama bin Laden files. They, this conclusion should not have been made, and it's we're setting bad policy based on bad conclusions, and this is something that we believe the, the bin Laden files can help us clear out the historical information and even going forward. In terms of policy, uh, the connections uh, between um, Al Qaeda and the Islamic Republic of Iran. You've learned some things, there's more probably to be learned. Uh, talk a little bit about, about how you at this point understand that relationship and whether or not keeping that relationship um, sort of under wraps was important in order for the Iran deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Well, I mean, I can speak to the facts of the relationship and what we know about it. I mean, one of the reasons why we push for these files to come out, there are, you know, 20, 30 reasons. One of those reasons is that on July 28, 2011, the Obama administration's Treasury Department uh, issued a new terrorist designation saying that the Iranian government, the Iranian regime has an agreement with al-Qaeda and here are the personnel who are basically al-Qaeda facilitators, some of whom are located in Iran, who are operating under the terms of this agreement. Well, um, we found out from various people, including Treasury Department officials, that that designation was based in large part on bin Laden's files that, that actually detail this agreement. Um, and then what you see is over the next five years, between July 2011 and July 2016, this is coming from the Obama administration now. Their Treasury Department, their State Department is repeatedly saying that the Iranian regime has an agreement with al-Qaeda. Um, and this is a very important agreement because it allows al-Qaeda to maintain its core facilitation pipeline. This is the Obama administration's words. Um, in Iran, the core facilitation pipeline for al-Qaeda is in Iran. and. Throughout much of this time, the actual underlying files that were captured are not released. Um, so this is probably a different part of the Obama administration decided not to release the files that another part of the Obama administration was relying on for these official terrorist designations, which I think tells you something. Um, but in any event, um, so what we did was we, we, we advocated that those files should be released underlying. We've now, find, we've now found, we haven't reported on it yet, we're going to. We've found some of those files underlying those terrorist designations. We've got a lot of reports coming on that, uh, stuff, new stuff that people haven't seen. But we've also found other new details that um, people hadn't seen. You know, we found at 2 a.m. on a Saturday, by the way, a 19-page 19 19 memo written by a senior al-Qaeda leader uh, giving a historical overview of the relationship between Iran and al-Qaeda. Now, there are plenty of episodes of hostility and antagonism. They're fighting against each other in places like Syria and Yemen. And of course, you know, ISIS is at odds with uh, the Iranians in Iraq. You know, there's, there's a lot of areas where they're at odds with one another. And yet, um, what this memo and what those terrorist designations released by the Obama administration show is that there's still an opportunity or room for collusion, for cooperation, and to have these agreements. And this 19-page memo is, is very interesting because what it says is that basically before 9-11 and for maybe some time after that, the Iranians were willing to give the Saudi brothers and al-Qaeda 
everything they want as long as they're going after the U.S. throughout the region. Um, and that same memo does detail problems between the two. You know, after 9-11, Al-Qaeda had negotiated a safe haven in Iran, and the Al-Qaeda guys in, in Iran violated the terms of that safe haven and were, were, and were put in some form of detention. We know that. So, you know, this is a complex relationship. But what's interesting about this is when we report this, and we report it very carefully, and we say, you know, there's evidence that cuts both ways, and you have to tell the whole story. What's interesting is to watch some officials, some former officials, latch on to anything that's incriminating or damning of the Iranian regime, almost like criminal defense attorneys, and try and pretend like there's nothing nothing to see here, and there's no, no reason to, to look at this stuff. And I would say that the reaction from some of these officials has shown why we need all the files out in the first place, because... The bottom line is Longmore Journal will not cherry pick from the files, but we've seen how some officials will. And if memory serves, you've even uncovered a quote by bin Laden himself about the Iranians. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is so, you know, Bill brought up this January 19th press release um, from the ODNI, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, saying that they're closing the book on the bin Laden files. And ODNI, all they wanted people to know is that the files show there's hostility um, between Iran and al-Qaeda and that bin Laden hated Iran, right? Some of the files absolutely do show that, absolutely, and they should all be released. But w this is where you can see that people are only seeing part of the picture because one of the files released by ODNI itself previously, because of the National Intelligence Authorization Act of 2014, they're mandated by Congress to do this, one of the files was released was in bin Laden's own hand, October 18, 2007, he wrote it. He described Iran as the main artery for his organization in terms of personnel, communications, funds, that sort of thing. And the reason he wrote this is because he was dressing down his subordinate in Iraq who had threatened the Iranians. And he said, whoa, 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 before you do that, before you threaten the Iranians, this is something you should have consulted us with because this is so important to us, this whole sticky relationship, you know. And he goes on He goes on at length. This is not a love affair between Iran and Al-Qaeda. You know, they're not holding hands and saying kumbaya, my lord, or whatever in the field. But they do have these agreements and these deals. And bin Laden himself described the importance of the Iranian facilitation network that Al-Qaeda has as the main artery of its organization. Flash forward to January 19th of this year, even though this file had been out for a while, ODNI doesn't say anything about that. Even though ODNI itself had released the file, all they say is that all you need to know is there's hostility and, and problems and, 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 you know, hatred between the two. That's part of the story. We alone have said, tell the whole story. If I could add to that, you know, look, I mean, one of the things Tom and I were very clear about this, this isn't an, al an alliance between, they're not fellow travels in this fight. This is their, this is an, an alliance of convenience. It's a tactical alliance. It's a transa transactional alliance. That is how they're operating together. It's not because they both share the same vision, even though they, they both seek to impose their own version of a, of a caliphate and they want to dominate the, the Islamic sphere. They have very, very different views of what that government would be, of what that Islamic system would be. However, they agree that the, their prime enemy is the United States, and that's why Iran support, supported al-Qaeda and has supported and continues, I believe, because, because al-Qaeda remains a thorn in the U.S.'s side, and as long as al-Qaeda is attacking the United States and its interest, Iran will provide support. I mean, look look at how political deals are done in Washington, right? <laughs> bitter, bitter political foes can come together on occasion to get things done for their own common interests or against their own common foe, right? I mean, it's just the basics of human behavior, which seem to be beyond the grasps of some people when they analyze these issues, you know? And But the bottom line is that when we talk about the Bin Laden files, you're going to, we're finding all sorts of relationships like this that, you know, uh, show duplicity or complicity of various actors that need to be teased out. Um, and that's the important part of this is to show the complexity of the behavior, that it's not this sort of simple message that Al-Qaeda is a bunch of automatons who, 
you know, can't cooperate with anybody who doesn't see the world the way they do. We found religious rulings saying the exact opposite, that in fact, we have basically, Al-Qaeda says we have a hierarchy of hate, and those people we, we hate the most, we can we can basically compromise on, you know, with other people we hate, because we got to get to the, the people we hate the most first, you know, and that's basically their Sharia ruling. They're very, you know, they're very... Uh, uh, pliable in that regard, and you know that that's that's sort of a common human behavior. I don't understand why this is so difficult for people to understand, but um, I think it's probably more driven by others' policy desires and sort of the agenda they're looking to push. That there's been a lot of effort to deny that, but you know I got to tell you, most of the time we've spent on the file so far. And this is what Bill and I are really hunting. We want to understand Pakistan more. That's I, was I mean, going to ask yeah. about Pakistan. FTD's long war journal is banned in Pakistan. Has been banned in Pakistan for years. This is this is the story we really are hunting the most. I mean, this is the thing we really want to understand. We want to understand more about Bin Laden's support network inside Pakistan. And you know, with some of the files have already come out, and new files. Bill has done some reporting that sh- that have really illuminated sort of different aspects of the jihadi scene in Pakistan, and raises all sorts of new questions for us to address. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is certainly something that I have desired. For years, it's one of the the main reasons. I, you know, look, it, Bin Laden was killed in Abbottabad, which was basically Pakistan's West Point. We don't, be, nobody believes that he was there without someone, some level of support from within Pakistan's institutions, and we're we're hunting really hard for that evidence to see. We want to find out if it, you know what is that level of collusion. Look, we we never, I don't believe that President President Musharraf could tell me where Osama bin Laden was, but I believe Musharraf knew who to turn to, to say, tell me where bin, find out where bin Laden is, and he would have gotten that answer. I believe US, I believe US officials have even hinted at that as well, that they believe that that's how the relationship was in Pakistan. And yet it's, it, understanding the Pakistan dynamic, Pakistan has not been an ally of the United States. They, they are responsible for killing hundreds, if not thousands of Americans inside of, of Afghanistan. They're continuing um, to support jihadist groups, the the Taliban. Uh, it's not just the Haqqani network. The Haqqani network is part of the Taliban. We see evidence in the files of, um, you know, in the past there's been negotiations between or the, the attempts at negotiations between the Pakistanis and al-Qaeda. They knew who to reach out to. We've seen uh, evidence of, uh, you know, we've seen a... a, a, a we have a lot more to go in digging through these files inside on Pakistan, and um, it's it's just going to take take us some time to get there. But uh, this, to me, is one of the most important issues. So, one of the more interesting files we've seen on Pakistan is that um, you know there's, there's no question that Bin Laden and Al Qaeda were helping to orchestrate the insurgency against parts of the Pakistani state. Um, this was a pressure card that they would use through the Pakistani Taliban and other forces to come at Pakistani institutions. But it's very interesting, at, at, at some point in time, back in, I think it was 2010, uh, a few high-level Pakistani officials wanted to negotiate a truce with the Pakistani Taliban and other jihadists were coming after elements of the state. And who did they go to to negotiate the truce? They went to bin Laden. The bin Laden mm-hmm. files show that they, uh, they went through an intermediary to basically figure out how do we negotiate to get these forces to stand down. Uh, at the time. This is the type of complexity. So obviously, there's some level of knowledge that this uh, grand pooba of Al-Qaeda is in our midst. He's not exactly, you know, a far off foe. He's somebody close at hand. And there's at least some knowledge that he's there and close close by to negotiate with in some regard. And there was open source reports
reporting at the time saying there was some level of negotiations going on. The files provide more evidence along those lines. But Pakistan, as with all these issues, it's wheels within wheels, it's duplicity, it's very complex, you have to tease it out. And I think the, the number one thing that we're really looking for, I think that's going to be the most interesting is there are a variety of Pakistani jihadist groups that have been sponsored by the Pakistani state for decades. And it's just a simple fact that many of these groups are also allied with al-Qaeda. And some of them played a role in supporting al-Qaeda's network inside Pakistan. And teasing together that relationship, showing that you have these cutouts, these jihadist groups that are on the one hand sponsored by Pakistani intelligence or the military, on the other hand are allied with al-Qaeda, that's a very important story to tell. And if I may add one more thing to that, the Trump administration is has pressure, at, le at least um, verbally, on pressure on Pakistan to change its ways. It's a big part of its new Afghan Afghanistan Pakistan policy, or regional South South Asia policy. And yet, uh, this is really simple: if Pakistan is serious about um, changing its ways, about turning on these jihadist groups that it supported, it can easily round up. The leaders of Lashkari Taiba and, and Harkad Mujahideen and um, the Afghan, the Ketashura and the Haqqani network, which is again, the Haqqanis are just an integral part of the Taliban. We see, we've seen, we know the, how these groups interact with the Pakistani government and how they interact with Al Qaeda. There's a lot of uh, public information on it. If if the Pakistan was serious about changing its ways, these arrests can begin and they could begin quickly. I don't think we're going to see evidence of this, and I think the bin Laden files are going to tell us exactly why, because there has been decades of collusion between these groups. You've got 470,000 documents that have been released that you're going to be looking at. How are you going to prioritize that? How are you going to figure out what to do next week, the week after? I mean, this, these documents will be examined for years, but you have to, you, you have, to have a strategy to, to translate and, and analyze them. Yeah, this is what I was worried was going to give me a heart attack when stuff was given to us. Because um, So what it is is so about 300,000 of the files are actually computer software files or executable files. So those don't really have much interest or, or, tech, or supposedly don't have any. But we were given 107,499 files um, that included written documents in Arabic, again, no English translations, um, audio files, videos, and then two-thirds of them were actually image files. And it's a very, it's, it's just an incredible jumble of information. So next to a picture of some kittens, you could find a scanned version of two handwritten letters that, that are actually written by a guy named Mansour, who's actually a key Al-Qaeda facilitator. That literally happened, okay? So this is what we're dealing with here. And, you know, unfortunately, instead of getting a good guide to these files and having them say, hey, you know, here's where the important stuff is, it's basically us trolling through them, trying to figure out search words and terminologies and ways to actually process them. But most of it is... Are, are images that have other, that are not important, but then have important stuff buried in the same file folder. And that is a very difficult process for digging out material that's interesting. Just to be clear, over the years that these files have been in the administration's possession, they haven't even translated all of them? We don't think they've translated all of them. Uh, I'll be careful here. Um, yeah, you know, they but, may they, have, but they didn't give you the yeah, I think, I think they did. Yeah. I think we, did, we didn't get, there are certainly more translations than have been made public. So in previous releases, um, translations were put out. We were not given any English translations, um, and there weren't any put on online either. Um, I, I think, you know, part of the reason is supposedly they're not good enough to put out. But if that's the case, then why didn't you improve them and have them for your own internal use of better translation? Um, part of my understanding is that some of the, the translations are actually just basically just of the document, not full translations line by line. Um, that sort of thing. But we're, you know, we're very, being very careful to process, you know, a lot of different files and try and piece of the story. I mean, the part of the thing you have to understand here, Cliff, is that 
you can find a letter that's part of a chain of correspondence, and there are 17 pieces of this chain. One of them is in one file folder, and the other 16 are strewn across other file folders. And so documenting that and putting together some system for understanding the whole thing is just a colossal effort. There's a 228-page handwritten diary by Hassan bin Laden. Have you guys been able to re read that essentially in full yet? Oh, yeah. We, we have a full, almost complete translation of that, and others have done some reporting on it too. Um, you know, I, one of the takeaways I took from that, and which is very, very interesting, is that bin Laden in his handwritten journal was saying that he was uh, thinking about attacking the U.S. or calling for going after the U.S. all the way back in 1986, 1987. So this is at a time when the U.S. is technically on the side of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan fighting the Soviets, and he, his anti-Americanism was already shining through, according to him. He gave a lecture in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, in which he supposedly went on about how America is the real enemy. Um, well, that's very interesting because if you go flash forward to the 1990s, what bin Laden would say was that it was the presence of American forces in Saudi Arabia after the first, you know, during and after the first Gulf War that led to his desire and the necessity of attacking America. Well, years before that, as we now see in his own handwritten journal, he was already saying we have to attack America. So, Is this document uh, not just a professional journal but also a personal diary? I mean, does he talk about, you know, his wives nagging him and other parts of his, his life uh, in, in, in uh, scenic Abbottabad? We haven't seen a lot of that. I mean, a lot of it is, is you know, there are, the most interesting passages are him looking at the world and trying to figure out Al-Qaeda's place in it. And, you know, here, here's one of the many ways in which these memes that were permeated in Washington are busted by the files. A lot of people in Washington thought that the Arab Spring was the end of Al-Qaeda-style jihadism. Um, bin Laden did not see the world that way. And, you know, he certainly not everything has gone their way since the Arab Spring, but they made a lot of gains in different ways because of the opportunities that are open to them. And there was no real attempt to basically counter early on what Al-Qaeda was going to do to take advantage of the Arab Spring. Remember, they didn't just seize bin Laden's library or his notes. It was everything or whatever they could grab from everyone at that house. There were women, there were children. So I'm not so sure bin Laden was interested in crochet or things like that. And probably was his wife or one of one of his wives there or something like that. So we have to keep all of that in aspect too. There's a lot of been made of of all this and a lot and it's good we should laugh at our enemies but at the end of the day we have to understand what that information is on the in the files as well well one of the things i did learn though from the more frivolous files is a lot more about bollywood i'm not up on bollywood but somebody in the about about compound yeah. was a big fan of bollywood videos uh, i've learned to appreciate bollywood videos myself from having watched them from the lens compound <laughs> well that's an interesting note to leave it but you guys will be doing a lot more work over the coming months we'd like to have you on to discuss whatever you're finding whatever you're writing about whatever you're seeing uh, thanks so much. Uh, this has been great. We've learned a lot. And I'm Cliff May, and this is Podacy from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Well, that wraps up Episode 1 of Foreign Podacy. Be sure to subscribe. You can do so on iTunes, on Google Play, and Stitcher. Also, leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing, how we can do better. We'd be pleased to hear from you. Join us again next time. Thanks for listening. I'm Cliff May for FDD's Foreign Podacy.